Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I'm curious about a lot of things, which is why I subscribe to this newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle. And I had on the creator of that, Sahil Bloom. And after learning something fascinating about the actor Jared Leto, we moved on to more important topics. 22 razors, like Occam's razor, is a particular mindset to help you make decisions quickly in certain situations. We talk about several other ones that came from his recent newsletter, 22 Razors You Need to Know, everything from Feynman's razor to the Opinion razor that Charlie Munger favors to Hanlon's razor and several more. Check these out. For me, all of these make my decision-making better and they're such fascinating mental models to live by. my own personal model of investing, which is that if someone smarter than me is investing, then I'll piggyback that all day long. And that applies to stocks or private companies or whatever. I also think it's dangerous, to be totally fair. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you start FOMOing into shit because other people are doing it, like if I listen to a pitch and I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand this market. Um, I don't really think there's a big problem here. This doesn't seem like a big market, et cetera. And then at the end of the call, the guy says, um, or the girl says, uh, hey, by the way, Andreessen's investing. We've also got um, the Chainsmokers, Kevin Durant, uh, OBJ. <laughs> OBJ. Uh, we've got you know President Clinton, Barack Obama, whoever. They name a thousand impressive people. I, I've, I've fallen for all of those except the Chainsmokers. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're great, by the way. They have a great portfolio. Especially Jared Leto actually sneakily has one of the most impressive startup portfolios in the world. I think he might be like the only person who is a seed investor in both Uber and Lyft. Um, oh my god! Which is a fun fact. But um, yeah, it, you get that a lot. You hear those type of things, and you think, um, "Oh my god, what what am I missing? What did I not figure out?" And I think you have to just be able to say no to those situations, and it's very very difficult to do. And we all fall for it because our bias is that. FOMO bias right now. You want to you want to dive into this thing. I found your newsletter, the Curiosity Chronicle. We've all also been following your. You have these amazing Twitter threads where you've built up thousands of followers, and um, and the Curiosity Chronicle, your newsletter has like what? It's like sixty thousand subscribers, sixty eight thousand subscribers. Yeah, it's at seventy two. I think today it's pretty crazy. I forget. It's it's free, right? There's not. 
It is free. Yeah, everything I've done is free. Um, and that's just been, you know, my general model is like I'd rather reach more people and get businesses yeah. to pay for, you know, sponsor slots if they want to reach these people. How did you start the newsletter? The newsletter was sort I mean, everything has sort of been a natural outflow from the Twitter. So, I mean, just to set set the stage on it, I was working in private equity, had been there for six years, didn't really know if there was going to be a pivot point for me to change roles. COVID hits and suddenly I'm not working 90 to 100 hours a week. I'm not traveling uh, four days a week. I have more time on my hands. And I'd always loved writing. And especially I'd always loved like abstracting complexity. Um, that's how I always thought thought about it was, let me take this stuff that is extremely complex, finance, business, and an industry where like people have never had an incentive to simplify things. The incentive was always, let me talk over your head so that you have to pay me to do whatever it is I want I want to do for you. you know, like wealth managers, you know, financial consultants, whatever. It was always about, let me make this too complicated so that you're intimidated by it. And my whole perspective was like, I'm going to give you the Toyota Prius. Like I'm going to simplify the shit out of this give you the answers that you really want that will make you feel empowered and send you about on your day. And so I started doing these threads. This is May of 2020, like a couple months after COVID. The first one was about basically about the Fed put, trying to explain why markets were soaring while the economy was in the was in the shitter, excuse my language. Um, and that was the beginning of it. I started doing threads, honestly, before anyone had really done them. And so just like any other kind of new innovation within a market, I feel like I got kind of outsized returns early because you were one of the first people experimenting with a new format. Now, as we all know, there's all these memes about threads on Twitter and people hate them and there's polarizing. But I, you know, I felt like I got a lot of benefit from being one of the early people doing it. And then as the new, as the Twitter following grew, I just started thinking of Twitter as like top of funnel discovery to then drive people and funnel people into the newsletter. And so I launched the newsletter in um, May of 2021. Uh, so what is that, 10 months ago? And started kind of writing longer form content, basically going deeper on some of the topics that I was capturing at a surface level on Twitter. Well, it's really great. I really enjoy it. And the, your latest article, which I have in front of me, is called The Most Valuable Razors. And obviously, you're not talking about razor blades. Although, I, out of laziness, I stopped shaving a few months ago and just let a beard grow for the first time in my life. But uh, so you say razors are rules of thumb that help simplify decisions and drive better outcomes. Uh, when used appropriately, they can meaningfully improve the quality of your decision making. And you give about 20 or so of these example razors. One thing you didn't, you didn't give Occam's razor, I don't think. And maybe we can discuss that for a second. Cause I think that is one that people don't really understand so well. And, that, and that I think of, when I think of razor, like where, where it comes from in terms of mindsets, Occam's razor is the, is the only one that I think of. Yeah. I've, so I've written about Occam's razor in the past. I have a thread on it somewhere and I've written about it in the newsletter, like in the very early days. Um, that was the reason I didn't include it was just cause I'd written about it before, but sure. immediately after posting it, 10 people are like, oh, you didn't include Occam's razor, you didn't include it. And so I attached it But obviously it the word razor includes it because the word razor comes from Occam's razor in this context. I think so. I mean, I actually don't know if the, if the word razor is like the original razor is Occam's razor. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's true. I think it is because, of, because it goes along with the concept of Occam's razor, which is that, you know, if you're trying to make a decision, the simplest solution it's kind of it's like a razor thin, you know, uh, you know what the simplest solution might be, as opposed to a more complicated one, and you you fall on the side of the simplest solution on a, on a razor thin edge. 
is that really what it's from? So, so I just remember when I researched the piece, like it's from William of Ockham, um, who was an English friar, theologian, and philosopher, um, and he had simplified deductive reasoning. Uh, it led others to coin the term of his name, and so it was like Ockham's razor. But I, I didn't know the part about the razor thin edge. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. <laughs> but like, like an example might be: Okay, is World War Three going to start from? Ukraine, Russia. Well, there's been lots of tensions that Russia's had with countries before. There's been lots of tensions in in the world before, and no World War III started. So the answer, the Occam's razor answer to that would be, no, this is not going to start World War III. Yeah, I always think of Occam's razor as like, figure out the one thing that really matters. I, I think it applies to investing in almost every situation where we get bogged down by like a million KPIs and you're looking at a business and you're just like, oh, there's this and there's the sales and there's this market and the new development and the R&D costs, whatever. And you can drive yourself absolutely nuts by looking at all of that. When the reality is there's like one thing that really matters that will tell you the story. And so it's all about then identifying that thing and just figuring that out. And it kind of takes all of the variables that you were looking at and just simplifies it to the one thing that really matters. Um, so I think we, I think the smartest investors use it a lot, whether or not they know they're using it, whether or not they would characterize it as using it. So maybe like a, a Warren Buffett example would be American Express. In the early 60s, they were going through a scandal and he went to the steakhouse that he always ate at. He sat behind the cash register and he saw that everyone was paying with American Express, even though their stock was heading towards zero. And he figured, look, this this brand is going to survive no matter what. So I'm investing in the stock. And he put a third of his fund in the stock. And of course, he had enormous returns. He probably That was the first thing that probably took him over a million dollars in net worth for himself personally. He was a young guy. But that would be an example, right? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think like Peter Lynch is probably one of the closest examples you'd look to on this stuff, like his famous book, One Up on Wall Street, which was one of the first books I ever read on investing. And he talks about kind of winds around this general concept, like with Haynes was one of his big investments that was like a hundred bagger for him. He just saw that everyone was going and buying these pantyhose at the time. And that became the thing that he focused on. And he saw that people were talking about it and wearing it. So it was a great investment. Um, so I think it's things like that and figuring those out in the investing world. Um, and with startups, it's particularly interesting because they will throw a million things at you for all the different variables, KPIs, things you should focus on, all the different metrics, et cetera. Yeah. And there's really like a couple things that actually matter. I also think the classic use of Occam's razor is in conspiracy theories. So was 9-11 a plan by the government to take over two airplanes, uh, bring down the World Trade Center in order for them to declare war on the Middle East? Or was it what it seemed to be, which is that terrorist you know, did they, what they did. And Occam's razor works really well there where it's probably not a conspiracy theory because of all the thousands of people who would have to collude to keep this a secret within the government, not known really for its secrecy. So Occam's razor is perfect for conspiracy theories. Is it more, Yeah. how many people have to collude for, for this conspiracy to happen? Well, the simplest thing is that nobody can collude to make things work because we're mostly incompetent people. Occam's razor is that, you know, the conspiracy didn't happen. Yeah, that's actually probably the most pure form of Occam's razor is like this idea that whichever, if you have two paths, the path that requires the least 
assumptions to prove true is probably the correct path. And so like in a conspiracy theory, you have to believe that a hundred things lined up perfectly in order for that conspiracy theory to be true versus the other one, which is just like terrorists that were angry at the United States committed this act. That's probably the more likely to be true path versus all of this other stuff. I've always thought conspiracy theories were funny because they give the government so much credit um, as these I know. like mad geniuses, when then you go to the you know you go to an airport and you see the TSA and or you go to the DMV, probably a better example, and you see how incompetent you know gov- our government institutions are, and it's pretty hard to imagine that same government being able to pull off that kind of shit. Yeah, well, it's amazing. Well, that's all, like, that could lead into a whole other discussion. So let's <laughs> look, let's look at the most valuable other razors, the Feynman <laughs> razor, named after Richard Feynman. Um, have you read uh, Surely You're Joking, Mister Feynman? Yeah. Excellent book. Yep. So, okay. So describe what that one, what that one is. So the Feynman razor, I've written about the Feynman technique before, which is like this whole idea that if you can teach it to a five-year-old, that is the deepest form of, of understanding and learning. So like kind of learning through teaching in a very simple form. And the idea that comes from that is if you cannot explain it simply and beautifully and elegantly, you don't really understand the topic in any depth. And different people have talked about this in different formats, like simplicity is the ultimate form of sophistication, I think was the quote. But Feynman was kind of the epitome of this. And so the Feynman razor basically says that if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you don't really understand it. And the other end of that is if someone is explaining something to you and they have to use a bunch of hand-waving and they're raising their voice and they use a bunch of jargon and fancy acronyms to explain it, they might not really understand what they're trying to explain to you. And I find it helpful in both directions, as like a governor on whether you actually understand something and also as a governor on whether other people are actually understanding what they're explaining to you. Well, it's funny. I, I write about this in a, in a slightly different context in a recent book of mine called Skip the Line where I describe how the best ways to learn something. So I call this technique plus minus equal. And I won't get into it, but the minus part is that whatever you're trying to learn, you should teach someone else because that's a good way to gauge your own understanding. As you said, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't truly understand something. So I think this is really important, whether you're judging someone or whether you're trying to figure out if you understand something or whether you're trying to figure out how to learn something, this Feynman razor is very important. Yeah, and I think writing is a natural way to do this if you don't have someone to actually explain it to. I find in general when I'm trying to learn something new, one of the first things I do is go write in you know a blank sheet of paper my understanding of it. And then I leave for five minutes, maybe go for a walk, make a coffee, et cetera, and then I come back to it. And when I read it, you immediately know and can understand whether there's gaps in the understanding of it because they become glaringly obvious to you on a blank sheet of paper. I think also the good thing about doing Twitter threads, and I've done quite quite a few myself, is that it forces you to take a complicated situation. And I think this is why people actually legitimately like Twitter threads overall, is because it forces you to take a complicated situation and explain it in a set of discrete, you know, 200 word or 200 character uh, tweets. And that's very useful to people. Yeah, forced brevity is a powerful thing. Um, it forces you. I mean, it forces you to get to the heart of something and and punch it through in a in a really meaningful way that spares no, um, you know, that 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 doesn't use a bunch of superfluous words, characters, etc. It just forces a level of kind of punchy um, prose that I think is really powerful. So I I like this one. I'm gonna skip around a little bit. Please. The room, the rooms razor. If mm-hmm. you have a choice between entering two rooms, choose the room where you are more likely to be the dumbest one in the room. And uh, this is this is similar to another one 
the uphill decision razor, which is when faced with two options, choose the one that's more difficult in the short term. And I'll just give you a simple example from, from my life. And then we can talk about it. If when I was doing a lot of stand up comedy, if I had a choice of going, well, let's say, let's say, uh, Chris rock was going up that night and the, and the, uh, booker gave me the choice. You can go after Chris rock, which would be incredibly difficult or before Chris rock, everyone else would choose before. And I would always choose after because the only way you're going to learn, the only way you're going to get better is challenging yourself in, in these, you know, difficult short-term decisions. Yeah. I think this is an incredible one for young people, especially, um, the, the tendency that we all have is to avoid situations where we are going to feel exposed. Um, and this applies to not just intellectual situations, but I think like at, at athletic situations. I mean, for me, the first instances of this were with baseball. So I played baseball um, all my life. I ended up getting a scholarship to go play at Stanford, um, a small scholarship to go play at Stanford. And I I chose that path over going and trying to play in the Ivy League, where I think I would have been more of a star from the get-go. And I chose it for this exact reason. I didn't have this name associated with it, the Rooms Razor, but I wanted to put myself in a position where I was the dumbest one in the room in the context of baseball in that, in that case, where I was going to be kind of the least talented one and be forced to really rise to the occasion as a result of being around those type of people. Um, and then I think it played out for me academically as well at Stanford. I literally was the dumbest one in the room in a lot of my classes. Um, but it's a, I think this is a powerful one because our, uh, again, our, like our natural bias is to avoid pain and pain can come in the form of having our ego broken when we're in a room where everyone knows something or understands something and is much smarter than us. And I've generally found that some of the biggest growth moments or the biggest kind of new relationships, things that have had the 10x impact on my life have come from a direct result of being in that one room at the outset. I'm going to add to it with a razor that I'm going to make up on the fly that you don't mention. Please. And I'll call it for the heck of it. I'll call it the Jocko razor. So Jocko Willink, he's an ex Navy SEAL. He's written a lot of books. He wrote this book called Extreme Ownership. And so how I will define the Jocko razor is that if you feel pain, then it's your fault. <laughs> Because like, let's say at Stanford, you were the dumbest person in the room a lot of the time, but let's say you find yourself, well, I would have been smarter in this one situation if I slept more or if the teacher wasn't such a dick or whatever. And it's easy to blame others when you feel pain because your, your brain doesn't want you to think you're at fault ever. And so, so I think this is really useful only if you also nat naturally know that if you're feeling pain or discomfort, then it's your fault and it's worthy of analysis. Yeah, it's something Gary V talks about. We had Gary V um, on our podcast recently. So I, I'm a host of a podcast called Where It Happens, which we would love to have you on, by the way. Oh, great. Um, and we I'm talk in. about tech business, but it's a you know, very casual setting. We have a drink and we talk about business concepts, startup ideas, et cetera. And we had Gary on and he talked about this exact concept and he talked about it in the context of like accountability and how what we lack in the world right now is accountability because the constant bias is for people to point a finger where you think things aren't going right. You're in that room and you're not doing well on tests. You're not, you know, performing at the level you thought. And your, your bias is to say like, it's someone's fault or I didn't sleep well because of this. And people were allowed and they were partnering, whatever it is versus just owning your shit yeah. and saying like, I didn't do what I was supposed to do for whatever reason. And there's obvious nuances to that. You know, there's certainly structural things that hold a lot of people back and we need to do better with that. But in, in large part, I do think accountability is one of the things that we all need to get better about. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I like this one, the serendipity razor. Some of what we call luck is actually the macro result of thousands of micro actions. Your daily habits put you in a position where luck is more likely to strike. This is incredibly important. Like there's the cliche, luck favors the prepared. In the game of chess, for instance, a lot of times one person will win and the loser will say, oh, you were just lucky. But there was, there's a saying, only the good players are lucky. <laughs> so your point here with the serendipity razor is when choosing between two paths, choose the path that has a larger serendipity surface area. So for instance, it was 2010, but, and you wanted to make a lot of money and you, you had a choice between moving to Topeka, Kansas and Silicon Valley, the serendipity razor would favor Silicon Valley. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is like a broad concept that I've written about more now. I actually just recently wrote a piece. I'll end up going into greater depth in a future Curiosity Chronicle article. But like, how do you create luck? This whole idea that you can actually engineer your own serendipity. Um, and I really do believe it. I think the serendipity razor is a kind of small microcosm of that. Choose paths that are more likely to lead to luck, where you expand your surface area. And what I mean by that is, when you're on a very fixed track in life, which a lot of that is a remnant of like the industrial age, I think you like graduate college, you take one job, you work in that job for 40 years, and then you get a gold watch and you retire. And that was your life. We live in a very different world now where you have opportunities to go and pursue a lot of different things. There's a lot of exciting things out there, new people to meet, et cetera. And when you're on that fixed path, you almost are like a horse that has blinders on where you're walking on a very narrow window and not much can get in. Have you seen the movie Interstellar? Yeah. So in Interstellar, there was this whole concept where they were going to look at the planets that they hoped you know, could house uh, humanity in the future. And one of them was sitting really close to a black hole. And what they ended up discovering was that sitting next to a black hole, it is impossible for life to exist on that planet because the black hole sucks up all of the luck. All of the luck that could have hit that planet and led to life gets sucked into the black hole and the planet is not exposed to it. I think about that in the context of life where- That's a great analogy. Where, where you need to sit in a way where all of the luck actually hits you rather than sitting in a way where it somehow gets repelled or sucked in a different direction. And so the more things you can do to open up your scope to embrace all of the luck that might hit, the better off you will be. You know, it's like, it, it, that's a great analogy because it applies to so many things that the black hole thing, like let's say you're in a bad relationship. If you're constantly arguing, that could suck up all your luck. <laughs> yeah, there are things in your life that are like the anti-luck. They are your black hole in, in that context. And I think being around toxic people is one of those. No luck comes to people who are toxic or highly negative. It just doesn't happen. They're like the anti-luck. So anything in your life that is that black hole, you're trying to eliminate. And then the other side of it is you're trying to create situations that open you up and expand your sphere, expand really like the diameter of your earth so that you can be getting hit by more of those lucky moments and things that come in. Right, and so somebody might be wondering, well, how do I get myself in situations that are lucky? How do I understand, you know, this is related to, uh, you know, this is the serendipity razor, this is, this is related to a lot of these different, you know, the mm -hmm. rare opportunity razor, but there's one here that is very important. Well, certainly the smart friends razor, which you talk about, mm -hmm. which is, if your smartest friends are all interested in something, you should take a look at it. That will increase your luck. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, probably 50 ways that you could very tactically go and try to do this and expand your serendipity surface area. I think talking to more strangers is one. You know, we're told when we're kids, don't talk to strangers. It's like this old adage. And I think a lot of the residue of that carries over into your life. And you have the whole like meme of no new friends. And I think it's just 
ridiculous because the reality is so many of those new relationships end up leading to one little spark or something that leads to you getting lucky. You know, writing in public, sharing on Twitter, writing a newsletter, writing is a massive way to get lucky because what you're doing is you're casting this like net of magnets out into the world, the magnets being your ideas, your insights, the things you're putting out there. And you end up attracting people into those by putting something out there. And you're, you're making yourself vulnerable. It's scary as shit sometimes uh, because you're putting your ideas on the line. But what you do is you're expanding your net. I can sit in my yeah. house somewhere and go and expand my net. Well, you're expanding your net and also you're attracting more smart friends into that net. Yes. So it gets you to take it. But, but actually, it's the rare opportunity raiser where you're looking for opportunities that have insane asymmetric return profile. So as an example, I'll use you. Um, putting out a Twitter thread has almost no downside, right? Like it'll take you, you know, assuming you know what you're doing, assuming you have the knowledge, it'll take you 10 minutes to make the thread. And, and if people don't like it, they won't view it. So it doesn't really hurt your reputation anyway. But if they like it, it gets thousands of retweets and it gets you subscribers to your newsletter and it gets more people know who you are. It's casting that net. So the rare opportunity raiser is, is these situations where little downside, huge upside, probably cheap and easy to do. And those like you could call them rare opportunities. You could call them experiments because the nature of an experiment is that it has little downside. It's usually cheap to do. And the upside is you could, you know, make a lot of money or win the Nobel prize or prove some theory. So I think that's an, an important one for increasing your luck, doing lots of, giving yourself lots of chances for rare opportunities. Again, yeah. a situation with little downside and huge upside. Yeah, you made, a, you made a good point there too in the context of writing in particular, which is if, if it's not good and people don't like it, by definition with these social platforms, nobody saw it. And so there's very little to feel bad about if you put something out there that you're proud of and it goes nowhere. Because the reality is no one saw it because it didn't get shared. And so literally like you actually fundamentally have nothing to feel bad about versus right. you know in the in the old days where people maybe saw it hated it and just didn't like it the way that social media works is nobody saw it in this case the other point is i actually feel like um I feel like I didn't quite explain the rare opportunity razor in the way that I intended to. I think everything you hit on is perfect with it. The other piece to it is there are specific things in your life, specific moments or opportunities that the average person literally gets zero to one chances at in their life. So what I mean by that is like you might go through your whole life and never get a chance at something big like this one item. And if you do and you happen to have that chance, it might be starting that, you know, co-founding some startup because there is someone that you knew that was starting it. You happen to be in the right place at the right time and you get that chance. You just have to jump at those opportunities because you have to know how rare they are and how asymmetric those opportunities are for your potential future. But it's hard it's hard to know though. Like, I mean, back in 2001, I got the opportunity to invest a relatively small amount for a big chunk of equity in a company that a few months later was bought by Google back in 2001. Mm -hmm. So it would have, they ended up with 1% of Google, which would be worth like, you know, a lot. 10, $10 billion right now. So, uh, uh, you know, but I, but you know, at that time it looked like the search engine business was dead. So I didn't really consider it even. Yeah. E easy to say, harder to do. Um, I think of it more in the context of, 
like I have a friend who was deciding between taking a job at an established startup or being a founding partner of this new, very interesting kind of foundry investment fund. And he was thinking about it because he was asking me, you know, look, I this this thing seems like a pretty sure thing. It looks like it'll probably IPO and I'll be kind of a mid-level exec there, et cetera. Or go start this new thing and you get your kind of one chance. And if it works, it's going to be astronomical and amazing. It probably won't work, but like this is my my other option. And I told him, I was like, man, you literally will get zero other chances in your life to do something this cool where you might be on the ground starting something at this age and going and building something massive. And so that type of opportunity is sort of what I was getting at. Yeah, so I guess I guess the way I use it is on things I can do every day mm-hmm. to basically increase my chances that so, some rare opportunity will happen or or it's sort of like again this serendipity razor but but to do it in such a way that I I know I can do this without putting much at risk. Um, yeah, I mean I think People get rich fundamentally in one way, and that is by exploiting asymmetries over and over and over again. The richest people in the world are just very good at exploiting, identifying, and then exploiting asymmetric opportunities, meaning they somehow or for some reason have a very capped downside, and then they have an uncapped upside. And they just over and over again play those games, and you're going to lose some of them. But when you lose them, you kind of minimally lose them. And when you win them, you make a shitload of money or a shitload have a shitload of power, influence, whatever it is that is your upside. But if you exploit those situations and you get really good at identifying them, it's hard not to make a lot of money. See, and the, and the key there is I you get good at identifying them. So I always assume about myself, I'm never good at identifying them. And so I try to create situations. That's why if, if you're never good at defining them, you have to make your the entry fee as low as possible. Yeah, or find someone who is really good at identifying them and align yourself with them. Yeah, um, I have some friends who are much better at identifying those situations than me, and I've benefited from just being friends with that person. So I, I love this next one, the worrying razor. If someone <laughs> says, don't worry about it, you should probably worry about it. What's an example? What's uh, an example for you personally? For me personally, I probably shouldn't share some of that. There's a few startups I've looked at where I asked a I thought a pretty fundamental question, and you get the response of like, you know, loud noises, hand waving. Oh, that's a stupid question. You know, those type of responses. That's not the right question to ask. You should ask this instead. Generally speaking, you should run the other direction. Um, think about Theranos, uh, <laughs> the, the the famous one. Um, people that asked fundamental questions about that business were literally told they were being an idiot, or they just didn't understand it, or no, that's proprietary, so we can't share that. Here, we'll share this instead. Usually, there's a reason that people feel that reaction and push back, and it's rarely a good reason. Um, so, if you ask someone something, and you ask to look at something, or you ask a basic question, and you hear that reaction, or you see, feel their voice rise or the blood pressure rise, generally, there's something. There's a there there, right? So it's not. So it's interesting. So let's say, let's say, and I'll, I'll use Google as an example again. Let's say in 1998. You approached Larry Page and Sergey Brin, and they had this beginning search engine that was already starting to to grow at exponential levels, albeit from a very small user base. It wasn't wasn't the most popular search engine then. And you said, "Well, what's your business model?" They probably wouldn't have said, "Don't worry about it." They probably would have said something like, "Hey, we will worry about it when we have a significant number of users. Like if we start a business model now, it might detract or distract people from using our our service." And so, yeah, and I, so then they're not saying don't worry about it, but they're saying here's why you don't need to think about it yet. 
Yeah, I think the nuance here is that intellectually honest and comfortable and secure people won't say, don't worry about it, or that's stupid, or don't look there. They will explain to you why that is not this thing that should be the top of mind at the moment. So like Facebook is a good example. Mark Zuckerberg in the early days was getting tempted by investors or whoever was around to start advertising on the platform, to start having ads because they had all these users. And his whole point, if you go watch the social network, they were talking about it is like, no, that is the last thing we should do right now. It wasn't, hey, don't worry about how we're going to make money. It was, here is why that does not make sense as a decision right now because what we have is something cool. And as soon as we lose the coolness, we are dead. Um, and that was that's a fundamental explanation and an answer to the question. It's not a, hey, let me brush this under the rug or uh, let me yell at you a bunch of reasons why that's a dumb question. It's push it the other way. I think, honestly, one of this is one that proliferates on Twitter because when you have the debate between like the web two, you know, people, web three skeptics and the web three aficionados, you get a lot of this in both directions um, where people are just saying like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We'll figure out how to make these business models work or don't worry about it. It's, you know, no, this isn't a Ponzi scheme or this isn't an issue or in the other direction, you know, web two people yelling and saying, no, don't worry about it. You know, web three is dead. It's just, it, it's made up. It's a fugazi, et cetera. And so I think there's a lot of this and it, it this one allows you to cut through the noise around a lot of those debates. Particularly, I guess there's a spectrum. So the more don't worry about it is the final answer or the more emotion is involved in trying to say there's nothing here, don't look somewhere else, then the more likely it is that the worrying razor applies, that you should worry about this. Like basically the more emotion involved, like if they say, oh, I've never even thought about it because of X, Y, and Z, and it's just calm, then probably that's fine. But if they say, don't ask such a stupid question, God, everybody asks that, it's so stupid, that's probably something you should worry about. Yeah, if you ask a basic fundamental question and someone says you're an idiot, you should generally assume that you're not an idiot. It was a good question, and and uh, it's worth digging into more if you're trying to learn about the thing. Just because, you know, if they couldn't just give you a basic answer, if it was a basic question, there should be a clear and basic answer to it, and they can direct you to the FAQs in order to explain the thing. And if they don't do that, and they instead choose to call you stupid or call you a Luddite or whatever it is, you should probably go dig into that thing more or just run the other way and just avoid it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb. 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash james could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it hymns.com slash james that's how i 
how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. A lot of these razors are interesting, are kind of like pointers to character. So like if someone says, don't worry about it, if someone is like, you have one, the boasters razor, where if someone is boasting, either what they're boasting about is not really that true, or maybe they're insecure in some way, it's, it's usually a, a red flag. Or if someone's, um, you know, th this one's interesting too. I, I really love this one. And I've talked about this before on the podcast in my writing, you call it the opinion razor. Uh, and a, uh, Charlie Munger, you mentioned Charlie Munger, and he writes about this a lot. He says, I never allow myself to have an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. And this line has had a huge impact on me over the years. It's also called steel manning your argument, where if you're going to be in a debate, know the other side's position even better than them. Same thing. And this has been so valuable to me in any type of, of discussion. But I'm just curious about like, how how you've used this. Yeah, I think this is a powerful one that allows you to A, avoid arguments that you have no business being in, um, and B, it's just helpful for kind of observing from the outside in when people are having those discussions or having those debates. The most common pushback I get to this whenever I write about it is that Charlie Munger and Buffett haven't followed this in, in the context of crypto or in the context of Bitcoin and their positions on it, that they don't understand the, the debate, they don't understand the other side's argument as well as, as well as their own. And I think that's fine. I mean, my, I, don't, I actually don't have, I don't have an opinion on whether they do or not, <laughs> to use my own razor, because I haven't dug into what research they have done. But I generally think with these type of things, it's more the spirit of what they're saying that you should think about and not whether they practice it themselves. It's like, do as I say, not as I do. But this is a powerful one. And I think it, I think it applies to a lot of new technologies and a lot of debates that you see ongoing around, you know, Web3 is probably the most common one right now and, and around the relevance of the business models. Yeah, well, and also it's interesting, like you, you always have to look at someone's agenda, like Munger and Warren Buffett, they own a lot of banks and banks potentially have the most to lose in their business model from the rise of, you know, decentralized finance. So it could be that they've gone through this argument, you know, when talking over a game of bridge or whatever, but they don't share that on CNBC because it'll go against the interests of, you know, tens of billions of dollars of their investments. I, I'm I, laughing because you're you're running exactly into another famous Charlie Munger quote, which is "Show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome." Yeah. Um, and so now I feel like his two quotes are in direct tension, which I've never really thought about, but it's a great point. I remember after 9/11, Warren Buffett goes on CNBC and he said basically, "There's a hundred percent chance there will be a nuclear attack on U.S. soil within the next 40 or 50 years." And I'm thinking, like, why would he even say that? It's like the week after 9/11. Why would he even say that? And then, of course, at the next Super Bowl. He charged $2 million nuclear attack insurance for the Super Bowl. Like, if there's no nuclear attack that day, he just keeps the $2 million. And he, as far as I know, he's been doing this ever since on like yeah. hundreds or thousands of events. He's made a ton of money because he's made that one comment. 
Well, you remember like even um, post right right after COVID, he did the the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting is like May, um, and they did the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, which I pretty religiously watch. I got to go one year, which was an amazing experience. I met him, which was an even more amazing experience. But at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in 2020, I remember him being on stage saying like the worst is yet to come, and this is you know things are really bad, and we're selling. You know, they were like exiting positions; they had sold stuff at the bottom. Um, and I remember wondering, like, is he just, you know, going to buy back in heavy as soon as things dip more? And we were already in the recovery at that point. So it was actually probably he missed it if that was that was the intention. But you do always have to wonder, like these people's job is to drive returns for their shareholders and to deliver amazing outsized returns. And so the incentive there in the in the short and medium and long term is to do one thing that may not be intellectually honest at the moment. Well, you know, there's a, there's a quite a few razors here and, and other interesting ones, but people should subscribe to your newsletter, the Curiosity Chronicle. Oh, here's one which I think I missed. Hitchens razor. What can be asserted without evidence can be also dismissed without evidence. So what do you mean by that one? Helps you avoid a lot of pointless inter- internet arguments. Um, yeah, I mean this one, and I think yeah, like I think uh, I think it's Sagan Standard is the other one which I didn't include in here, which is um, it, uh, something that. An extraordinary claim requires equally extraordinary evidence to prove it, um, which I think, like in the context of religion, God, et cetera, yeah. is a big one that comes up. I've talked about this with Josh Wolf, who's an amazing investor that's that's written about this. But all of these kind of go in that same vein of um, you know when when you're having a debate or you're trying to uh, f- find different um, you know evidence or have a discussion with someone, the burden of proof really relies on the person making the claim. This is like a big one within the legal field. So, so I also wanted to ask you about, like you did a thread recently about money printing and I kind of wanted to understand that a little better. So I've been around, you know, finance and investing forever and I've written about all this and, and so on, but money printing always does, the, the word itself always does confuse me. And let's, let's see about explaining this simply. So when the Fed says, okay, we're going to buy $2 trillion worth of assets. We're going to do quantitative easing. What specifically happens? Do they, do they borrow $2 trillion and then use that money to buy assets? Or what, what do people mean when they say the Fed's printing money? You know, you're putting me into uh, my macro hat, which I have to admit is is pretty rusty from back in the day, um, and also tends to get you yelled at because depending on who you talk to, this is done in a in a variety of different ways. Um, so I might plead the fifth on this one, um, to be totally honest. Like I, like I guess... They do borrow the money eventually. So it's not like they just make up money. People like like China has lent the US like trillions of dollars. So they do borrow the money eventually. And then they then they like a little bit of inflation because it it reduces they pay for the usage of the printer later. Yeah. And, and they inflation want, is the business model though, right? It's like two percent inflation is the target. That's the business model that keeps people happy. Yeah. I did do a video. I did a vid I'm trying to remember when this was, because you it, this this really is like I was very deep into macro in kind of the early 2020 period. Like right when COVID was happening, there was so much going on in the world. And I did a video on CNBC um, that I think is like a pretty good explainer on this stuff that I should just, um, we can share, we can, uh, we can put it in an addendum in the, um, yeah, put it in, the in, show the, notes. in the show notes. I will, uh, I'll send it across. Cause I do remember this being a pretty good explainer of like, it was in the context of the stimulus check. Like how is the government creating the money to send you the stimulus check in the mail? And I, and I guess, again, like they, they just borrow it and 
I was talking to someone on the, who's, who's on the federal reserve, uh, like he said, deputy governor or whatever, uh, was on the podcast. And he said that basically there was so much demand for the U S dollar that they could keep quote unquote printing for years because everybody wants to lend money to the U S because it's a way of getting money out of their own countries. So yeah, the reserve status is massive for this. I mean, the, the U S dollar being the global reserve currency is the biggest advantage we have. Everyone wants U S dollars and any other country that's out there in the world wants U S dollars. And so you can create almost an infinite amount in their, in their minds, um, because it's the reserve currency and because there's always demand for U S dollars. The second that changes, that's what a lot of people worry about is if you, if you no longer have that reserve status, or if you start to be, you know, have it be infringed upon, which is what people think about in the context of the the rise of China, um, you have a big, big problem because suddenly you have all of these dollars out there that nobody wants. Right. So I guess that's the way to think about it, that they, the, the place where they're printing is not when they drop down dollars on, you know, in the stimulus check, the place where they're printing is when they sell treasury bonds to other countries. Those treasury bonds are coming off the printer and people give money for them. And that money is then used for the stimulus. So, yep. and they're just like, oh, we need more money, print more treasury bills yeah. and, and sell them to people. And printing is a funny term because, it, you know, it's the genesis of printing is literally because there were money printers and it was cash coming off this printer. And that's what people imagine. The reality is this is all in computers now. It's literally like a click and there's a big number on the screen and somebody has to, you know, have the assets, but it's all done through a computer now. Like if, you know, if the Fed has to transfer money, <laughs> I don't know if transfer is the right term there and people are going to yell at me, but if if the treasury needs money to fund stimulus checks, there is not actually like barrels of cash being wheeled through the streets to give the treasury money to put into checks to send to, or to put into envelopes to send to people around the country. It's all done through computers and everything is digital now. Yeah, no, I think actually, um, if I remember the statistics correctly, we're, we're, it's, a, it's a $15 trillion economy but maybe there's about $200 billion worth of cash. Mm -hmm. So, and everything else is just computerized. Yeah, and all the derivatives on the back of it. I mean, it's it's insane. I think um, the big short did a really good job of showing that when they had the like uh, poker table or the craps table or whatever and all the bets that were going on behind it um, that kind of levered up the bets that were actually happening on the table. Similar context here oh, to, to what the economy looks like. Oh yeah, I think the global economy is let's say $50 trillion, but guess how many... Guess how big the Wall Street economy is, i.e. not only the, you know, invest level of investments in cash in the world, but the level of derivatives on that, those investments. Uh, 50x that? Uh, yeah, well, it's like maybe a little, a little more than like almost 25x. So it's like uh, 1.3 1 quadrillion dollars. Yeah. So, and you know, it's probably more. I don't even know how they estimate that. It's, it's such a complicated thing. Incredible. So, so uh, and but I'll close with this one because this one's a really important one just for like sanity. I've never heard it referred to this way, Hanlon's razor, um, but it's never attribute to uh, malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. So a lot of times people say, oh, why did this person call me back? What did I do to them? They they must hate me for some reason or I'm, or people are talking about me behind my, I'm revealing my own insecurities. People are talking about me behind my, my back. That's why this person doesn't come on my podcast. And it's more likely they just forgot it or or were busy or there's there's, there's almost, there's very few reasons to attribute something to malice. Completely agree. And I, I think stupidity is probably the the harshest term that I would use for this. I think like incompetence is probably a, a more uh, a, a more credible one here, which is just like if you're if you're inclined to assume that someone is doing something out of spite or to destroy you or out of malice, 
the reality is it's probably just some form of like negligence, ignorance, incompetence, etc. And it'll honestly, this one will just keep you a happier person because you will stop feeling like everybody is out to get you or doing something out of spite for you. I would say all of these razors ultimately make one happier. Uh, and I encourage, there's a lot we left out. I encourage people to check it out. Go to the Curiosity or, or just Google the Curiosity uh, Chronicle or Google Sahil, S-A-H-I-L, Bloom, but probably easier to Google the Curiosity Chronicle and you'll find his newsletter and you should subscribe or check out his Twitter threads. But uh, Sahil, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you on again whenever you've got like an interesting uh, uh, list or thread here. So, so keep them coming. Gives me, I gives can't me wait. I podcast. really appreciate it. I have, um, you know, I've, I've been a, a huge fan of your work for a long time. So this was a real thrill for me and we'll have to have you on our podcast, which is called where it happens, by the way. Oh yeah. Um, looking definitely. forward to that as well. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get you on soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. 